John chapter 3 is our passage. Grab a Bible, find John 3. There are some notes in the bulletin if you want to follow along. I told you several weeks ago, John is a gospel filled with dialogue. There's lots of conversations recounted in this gospel. And the one that we're going to look at this morning, I think, is one of the most fascinating conversations in the gospel of John. It's Jesus talking with a man named Nicodemus. It's a story that many of you are probably familiar with, but before we just jump into the story, I want to make sure that we all understand this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus is directly connected to the story that we talked about last week where Jesus clears the temple. And there's a couple of clues that I want to make sure that you see so that you know these two stories are are connected. First of all, let's say this. The word man is a clue. It's a grammatical link between the story that ends in John 2.25 and the story that begins in John 3.1. And so if you have your Bible open, you just look at the the last verse of John chapter 2. And it says, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And the very next verse says, chapter 3 verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. John's connecting these two stories, and he's saying, look, we left off in chapter 2, and there was a group of people who believed, quote-unquote, air quotes, believed Jesus, but Jesus, for his part, did not entrust himself to these people. Literally, Jesus did not believe in them because he knew their hearts. It's the exact same verb. They believed Jesus. Jesus did not believe in them because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew their faith was not genuine. So he didn't entrust himself to these people. Jesus didn't need anyone to tell him what was in a man, to bear witness about a man. He knew what was in man. The very next verse, let me tell you about a man who came to talk to Jesus. And you and I are to understand that this man coming to Jesus is one of these people who has a kind of faith or belief, but really hasn't connected all the dots about Jesus. There's another clue, and it's the word signs. Nicodemus makes reference to the untold signs Jesus was performing in Jerusalem during the Passover celebration. So if you just look at John chapter 2, verse 23, we read that, He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed, quote-unquote, believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And John doesn't tell us what those signs were. He doesn't tell us if he was uh, healing people or casting out demons or, or multiplying bread or whatever it may be. He just says he was doing some signs. People saw that. They had a kind of faith. And then Nicodemus shows up, chapter 3, verse 2, and he says, No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so there's some understanding of Jesus is doing amazing things, and Nicodemus says, we know that God is with you because you're able to do these signs. So just take a breath before we jump into the conversation and understand the conflict that bubbled over when Jesus went to Jerusalem and cleared everyone out of the temple, and he was performing signs, and the Jewish leaders came and said, who, who gave you the right to do this? On whose authority do you do this? Jesus answers them about tear the temple down, I'll rebuild it. And John says he's talking about his body. That conflict carries over to the next chapter. And Jesus is now talking with Nicodemus, one of those Jewish leaders who was concerned 
that Jesus is clearing everyone out and Jesus is talking about tearing down the temple. He's coming to Jesus and he's coming for some sort of answers. I want you to understand this. The story we're about to to talk about, the conversation we're about to discuss, is intentionally ambiguous. It's intentionally filled with ambiguity. I just want you to know, when you read commentaries about this passage, really, really smart people who agree about 99% of the Gospel of John and how to interpret it and how to apply it. I mean, they agree on almost everything. They come to a passage like this one, and there's all sorts of offshoots. People go in this direction. People go in that direction. People offering this explanation. People offering that explanation. And part of the reason you have all these differences of opinions is that there is some ambiguity in here, and John put it there on purpose. It's not an accident. It's not like John had a bad writing day and he didn't include all the details he needed to include. The Holy Spirit inspired John. He wrote exactly what God wanted him to write and the ambiguity is intentional. We're going to talk about a little bit later why it's intentional. Why would John leave out these details that would clear up so many of these different debates? And I just want you to understand something before we jump in. This is applicable this week and every week through the Gospel of John. It's applicable for most sermons we would preach or, or Bible study lessons we would teach. When God gave us the Scriptures, this book, He didn't give us a theological encyclopedia. It's not a dictionary. Sometimes we treat it like a dictionary. We say, oh, I have a verse for that. And I go to this verse and I pull it out and I'm going to use this verse to make my point. We don't pay attention to what came before it. We don't pay attention to what came after it. We use this verse. That's how you use a dictionary, right? You don't need to know the previous word to understand the definition of this word. You can just pull one out and you can use it appropriately. That's not what the Bible is. It can be very dangerous to just go and pull a verse and lift it up and forget everything before it and forget everything after it. God didn't give us a theological dictionary in the Scriptures. He could have done that. It was within His power. What He gave us is a story from Genesis to Revelation. One big story. There's lots of moving parts. There's lots of different characters. There's lots of different things that that are happening. But rather than just sort of give us a dictionary, a theological encyclopedic entry for, here's the doctrine of regeneration. That's what we're talking about this morning, being born again, regeneration. Instead of just giving us a dictionary entry, and I have books in my library that have that, God gave us a story. And the story is about a man named Nicodemus, You need to understand what came before it. There's a conflict in the temple, and here comes one of these men to talk to Jesus, and they have a discussion about what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born from above? And that leads us to the big idea. It's very simple. If you want to see the kingdom of God and you want to have eternal life, you must experience new birth. New birth. If you want to see the kingdom and you want to have life that never ends... You must, emphasis on the must, you must experience new birth. I want you to notice that Jesus uses both of these terms. In John 3, 3, he talks about unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And if you jump down to verse 15, he says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And if you'd like to make notes in your Bible, you could just circle those two phrases. Verse 3, kingdom of God. Verse 15, eternal life. Circle both of those phrases. Draw a little line down the side and say, these t- we're talking about the same thing in these two verses. Right? Same idea. 
When you read through the Gospels and you look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has a lot to say about the kingdom of heaven. And then you come to Mark and Luke, and it's the kingdom of God. And then you come to the Gospel of John. This is the only time in the Gospel of John you're going to see the phrase, the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about a kingdom one other place, but he doesn't use the phrase the kingdom of God. It's the only place it shows up. What John usually talks about is life, eternal life. And I just want you to understand, roughly those two ideas are synonymous. If you have eternal life, you're part of the kingdom of God. And if you make it into the kingdom of God, that means you have eternal life. Those two ideas just dovetail together. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus at the beginning of their conversation and the end of their conversation, if you want to see the kingdom, and if you want to have eternal life, and I think everyone in the room would raise your hand and sign up for that, by the way. Do you want to see the kingdom of God, and do you want to have life that that lasts forever and ever and ever? We all want that. There's not a person on the planet that doesn't want that. Jesus says, this is what you need to know. If you want to see the kingdom and you want to have life, you must be born again. You must have new birth. How many of you know the name Chuck Colson? Just show of hands. All the older people are raising their hands. I'm not, it's not old people, older people are raising their hands. Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson uh, is famous for a couple of things. Okay? First of all, he was famous because he worked... Uh, For the President of the United States in 69 and 70, he was special counsel to President Richard Nixon. And he had a nickname when he worked for uh, Nixon. His nickname was Hatchet Man. I don't know what you have to do to get the nickname Hatchet Man, but it doesn't sound good. And by all accounts, Chuck Colson was not a very nice guy. He was just sort of a rotten dude. He was sort of the the guy behind the scenes taking care of a lot of uh, shady business. And eventually, you see down on the right there, he got caught. And he was the first member of Nixon's administration to be sent to prison for his involvement in the Watergate scandal. So Hatchet Man goes to prison. After he's indicted for these crimes related to the Watergate scandal, after he's indicted but before he's sentenced, he goes through a change in life. And initially, people were very, very skeptical. I mean, this would be like, think of the sleaziest politician you can imagine. And in the midst of being in really, really big trouble, they sort of come out and they say, I love Jesus now. You'd roll your eyes and you'd say, give me a break. What a joke. And he came out and he said, I love Jesus. Somebody had given him a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Okay? Not a follower of Jesus. He reads this book, this defense of the Christian faith. He reads the New Testament. He starts to think about Jesus, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. And he says, right, after his, his uh, indictment before the conviction, I'm now a follower of Jesus. And everybody just kind of rolls their eyes and says, yeah, yeah, whatever. But he, he really meant it. And after he serves his term, several years go by, he sticks with the Christian faith, and he writes a book. And the book that he writes is called Born Again. Born again. And the book is his story of how he met Jesus and became a follower of Jesus. I used to be this guy, then I was born again, and then I became a follower of Jesus, and my life was completely different on the other side of this new birth. Now, we hear this phrase used sometimes today born again Christians, right? Have you been born again? 
Mostly we hear it from pollsters, people like Gallup and Pew and, and all these different poll companies. They want to they wanna find out what people believe. And one of the little segments they always give you in their poll results is, this is what born-again Christians think. This is how born-again Christians feel about this issue. This is how born-again Christians feel about this particular candidate. I just want you to understand that when you say born-again Christian, that's kind of the same as talking about round circles or three-sided triangles. Say, oh, look, that's a three-sided triangle. They're all three-sided. You want to talk about a Christian... They're all born again. And it's a sad state of Christianity in our country that we've got so many people willing to identify as a Christian, we have to add adjectives to it to say, okay, these are the real Christians. Like there's these Christians over here that aren't real serious about it. These are the ones who are really, really the real deal. And we're going to call them born-again Christians. And I think if Jesus or even Nicodemus at this point could come back and just look at how we talk about born-again Christians, they would say, that's kind of redundant, don't you think? Like, that's like saying Christian, Christian. Born again, born again. The two things mean the same thing. If you are born again, you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, you've been born again. If you're not a Christian, you have not been born again. And if you have not been born again, you are not a Christian. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom and you want to have eternal life. So let's jump into the story. Let's talk about Nicodemus. Several things you need to know about this guy. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he was a recognized teacher in Jerusalem. I just want to say a word about each of those things, okay? Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, teacher in Jerusalem. First of all, the Pharisees. We hear Pharisee and we think bad guys because we've read the New Testament or we've heard the stories. Pharisees are bad guys. They're the the hypocrites. In Jesus' day, nobody heard Pharisee and thought bad guy. They heard Pharisee and they thought that's a good guy. In Jesus' day, we know there were about 6,000 men who had taken this oath to become part of the Pharisees. And their mission in life was really, really simple. It was not complicated. The job of the Pharisee, the commitment of a Pharisee was this. I will keep all of the commands in the, in the Old Testament. They wouldn't have said the Old Testament. They would have just said the Scriptures. But I'll keep all the commands. All the don'ts I'm going to stay away from. All the do's I'm going to do my best to keep them. I'm going to do everything. Thing that God says to do. That's who the Pharisees were. Just keep that in your brain when you're reading about Nicodemus as a Pharisee. Don't think bad guy. Think here's a guy who had made a vow to God. I want to do everything that you've told me to do. And I don't want to do anything you've told me not to do. I want to be serious about your word. So he was a Pharisee. Secondly, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. If you look at John 3, 1, says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That little phrase, a ruler of the Jews, suggests to us, tells us that he was actually part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Seventy Jewish men who sat on a, a council of sorts. The best way to describe it, if you're an American and you know how our government works, is that it was the Supreme Court and the Congress mashed into one group of people. And there was 70 of them. 
Some of them were Pharisees. Some of them were Sadducees. We'll talk about them down the road in the Gospel of John. But you had this 70-member council that made all of the decisions for Israel. And yes, they ruled under Roman authority, but the Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish authority in the land. And Nicodemus was one of these guys. He was a ruler of the people. Last, he was a teacher. And if you look at verse 10, and your translation follows the Greek literally, what Jesus actually says is, you are the teacher of Israel. Not just a teacher, but you're the teacher. And we don't really know exactly what Jesus meant by this, to be honest. But what he's saying is, people recognize you as a big deal. Like, you're the seminary dean. You're the seminary professor. You have the endowed position at Jerusalem Theological Seminary. Of all the people in Jerusalem... You should know this, and you don't understand it. So he's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. And he's a teacher, a recognized teacher. We know those things about Nicodemus. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. You may think you know other things about Nicodemus. I'm just going to tell you some things we don't know. We don't know. If you think you know these things, you're assuming more than what John has actually told us. So here's what we don't know. We don't know why he came at night. We don't know. You can find people who are very serious about the Bible, try to make sense of this. Some people say he came at night because he was scared. He didn't want to be seen during the day. You may have heard that explanation. He was just scared to be seen with Jesus. Other people say, you know what? If you pay attention to Jewish literature around this time, this is when the rabbis tended to argue and debate in the evenings. That's when he would have come. He wanted to come to Jesus. He called Jesus a rabbi. He had questions. They were hashing something out. That's when he would have done it. He wouldn't have done it at 5 a.m. He would have come in the evening. Some people say, you know, when you keep reading in the Gospel of John, every time John tells you it's night, something bad's about to happen. So some people say this is John's way of telling you this guy, this guy is not on the up and up. This is shady. You can't trust him. He doesn't understand. And I'm just telling you all of those explanations are given by people who take the Bible seriously. John tells us he came at night. We don't know exactly why. We don't know why he came to Jesus and said, we know. We know. There's lots of speculation. Have you ever had somebody come up to you if you're in a position of leadership and they say, People say this to pastors all the time. Pastor, people have been saying something. We've been talking, which really means I've been thinking about something and I'm going to tell it to you and I want you to think more of us think it than just me. So, quote unquote, we have been talking. Some people say that's what Nicodemus is doing. He's coming on his own and he's, he's trying to add weight to what he's about to say. Some people think, no, he's on an, an official Mission, like the Sanhedrin sent him, the Pharisees sent him, and he's speaking on behalf of this group. Makes sense if he was the teacher that he would be the guy that they sent, maybe. Some people say no, he actually had a group of disciples with him. He didn't come just alone, but he had other people with him. Jesus had some of his guys, Nicodemus had some of his guys. When you get into the the text in the original language, most of these pronouns are plural pronouns. Pronouns going back and forth, so is one group talking to another group? We don't know. But he comes to Jesus at night, and he says, we know something. We don't know why he calls Jesus rabbi. Was he just trying to butter him up? Was he just trying to to give him an honorific title? If you've ever been overseas on one of our mission trips to Kenya, there's nothing better than being introduced in Kenya. 
because they say the nicest things about you. And about 10 minutes into the introduction, you look around and you, you start to think, I don't think they mean any of that. But that's just their culture. They just they introduce you, and oh, they, they throw all these titles at you. It's an Eastern uh, cultural thing. Maybe that's what, what they're doing. Some commentators look at it and say, no, he, he's viewing Jesus as an equal here. He's a rabbi. He's the teacher in Israel, and he's calling Jesus teacher. There's a, a mutual respect taking place here. We don't know. We don't even really know why he came in the first place. I'm just telling you, I read commentaries all week long, and one group says he's coming to trap Jesus, and one group says, no, he's really a believer, and, and he's coming to get answers, and one group says, no, he's just confused, and he's, he's playing the role of a puppet. And look, it's just a little bit unclear. Some of these things we just don't know. Why did he come at night? Why did he say we No. Why did he call Jesus rabbi? What was the point in him coming in the first place? Some of this is just ambiguous. And guess what? It's on purpose. Because let me tell you something really important. John 3, 1 to 15 is not mostly about Nicodemus. It's mostly about Jesus. And if you want to get lost in the weeds and the debate and argue about Nicodemus this and Nicodemus that, you miss the thrust of the whole passage. You miss the point of the whole passage. Nicodemus is not the hero of the Gospel of John. He pops in here, then he pops out. He's going to pop in again later, and then he's out again. It's not a book about Nicodemus. It's a book about Jesus. So we can just be honest about what we're not sure about, and we can come back and say, we know what Jesus wanted this man to take away. Whatever his reasons in coming, whatever his reasons in saying what he said, it's clear what Jesus wanted Nicodemus to take away. And we'll start with this. Jesus told Nicodemus that a person must be born again or, same idea, born from above if they are going to see the kingdom of God. He said that to him twice. Once in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and in your Bible there may be a footnote right by the word again that takes you to the bottom and says, the Greek pronoun here, the Greek word here, uh, it's not a pronoun but an adverb, anothen, anothen, it either means again or from above. And we're not exactly sure which one he means. And then in verse 7 he says, Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And your Bible may have the exact same pronoun. So Jesus is saying to this man, You must be born anothen. You must be born again or from above. It means the same, means either one. And context determines it. And so you say, well, what does he mean? Does he mean you need to be born again a second time? Or does he mean that you need to be born from above? Nicodemus just takes off running with the born again thing. Right? Born again. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. you're telling me i got to go back in my mother's womb? How am I going to do that when I'm grown? How's that going to happen? And Jesus starts to reel him in, and he says it again. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born from above. When we sort this out, we have one big advantage over Nicodemus. Okay, We have the whole Gospel of John. So hold your spot in chapter 3. Flip back one page to the left. Look at John chapter 1 and read with me verse 12 and verse 13. What does Jesus mean when he's talking about this new birth, being born from again, being born from above? John 1 verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who 
were born. Here we go. We're talking about birth. This is going to help you understand John chapter 3. These children, the ones who believed, who received Jesus, they were born, verse 13, not of blood. It's not a natural descent. You're not genetically born into this family. Nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. Meaning, it's not up to you. No one else can make this decision for you. You can't even make the decision to be born again. John says, it's not of blood, and it's not of the will of the flesh, and it's not the will of man. How in the world are you going to be born again? Of God. God does it. You don't control the new birth. God controls it. And Jesus says to Nicodemus twice, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born from above. If you want to see the kingdom and you want to have eternal life, something has to happen to you that you can't manufacture yourself. It's not of natural descent. It's not of blood. And it's not of the will of the flesh. And it's not of the will of man. You can't just decide to do it. How does it happen then? God does it. This new birth, this birth from above, comes from God. And I just want you to understand how radical that would have been to Nicodemus. Jesus is saying to him, if you want to see the kingdom and go to heaven when you die and live forever, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus would have said, well, I was born into the right family in the first place. I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham. They are literally going to say that to Jesus later in this gospel. Whoa, Jesus, back off. We were born into the right family. Jesus says, nope, you've got to be born again of God from above. Nicodemus would have said, wait a minute, I'm a Pharisee. I've given my whole life to being a good person. What do you mean I have to be born again? Jesus says, you're not good enough. You can't be good enough. The problem, Nicodemus, is not that your sin makes you a bad person. It's that your sin makes you a dead person. And you need new life. You have to be born again. Now look, it's easy to look at Nicodemus and the Pharisees and the Jews and say, what a bunch of goobers. Like, they thought they could just be born into it. They thought they could be good enough. Can I just suggest to you that that's the default religion for most people who live on this earth? I've been born. When I die, I go to heaven. On what basis? Well, I was here, wasn't I? That's sort of how we preach a lot of funerals. Oh, this guy born here, died here, he's in heaven now. Like it's just automatic. And if you don't think that, if you don't think you get in just for the fact that you were born on this earth, then we tend to think, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not that bad. You may not have the the audacity or the arrogance of a Pharisee to say, I keep all of God's commands. But that's how we talk. We say, oh, he's a really good guy, really good lady. Just a good person. Just trying to be a good person. As Nicodemus' faith. I'm born in the right family, and I'm a pretty good person. And now you're telling me that's not enough to see the kingdom. And that's not enough to have eternal life. And Jesus says it's not even close. You think your sin just makes you bad and you can overcome that by being good. But the problem isn't that you're bad. The problem is that you're dead. You're dead. 
in your birth certificate, in your list of obedience, is in no way, shape, or form enough to keep you out of hell. I came across a story this week, looked it up, did some research on it. I've never heard this uh, fable, I guess you would call it. It comes from the Middle East, and it's about a traveler, and the traveler's going down the road. And as he goes down the road, he looks off to the side, and there's a, a sparrow. And the sparrow is laying upside down, but it's not dead. It's very much alive. Sparrow's on the side of the road, upside down, laying on its back, feet sticking up in the air. Right? Can you picture sparrow feet sticking up in the air, little twigs sticking up in the air? And the traveler comes upon this bird, and he's not hurt, and uh, you know, there's no imminent danger. And the traveler stops and says to the bird, what, what, what are you doing? Why are you laying on your back with your legs up in there? And the sparrow looks back up in the fable to the traveler and says, Well, somebody told me that the sky was going to fall, and I'm going to catch it. And the traveler looks down at the sparrow and says, Are you serious? With those little twig legs, that's our hope for the sky falling, is that you're going to lay up on your back and your little legs are going to catch the sky? And the sparrow looks at the traveler and says this, one does the best one can. That can be your approach to eternity in the kingdom of God. You can just say, I'm doing the best I can. I feel like I was born into a pretty good family. I feel like I've lived a pretty good life. And I'm just telling you that A day is coming where the wrath of God is going to be revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of mankind. And it's going to be way worse than the sky falling. In fact, the book of Revelation says when that day comes and it starts to fall, the wrath of God starts to fall, people will actually say, mountains, please fall on me. I would rather have the mountain fall on me than the wrath of Almighty God. And on that day, you can be like the sparrow. You can stick your little twigs of morality up. You can stick your little twigs of your birth certificate up in the air. And you can trust and hope and pray that that will save you from the wrath of God falling on sinners. And you can say, I'm just doing the best I can. You can do that. Or you can listen to Jesus. When Jesus says to Nicodemus and he says to us, it's not enough. I don't care if you're a Pharisee. I don't care if you're on the Sanhedrin. I I don't care if you're the teacher of Jerusalem. I don't care if you went to VBS. I don't care if you went to youth camp growing up. I don't care if you have a marked seat in the sanctuary. Everybody knows that's your spot. That doesn't matter. You must be born again from above. It's something that God does. It's not of of blood. It's not of the will of the flesh. It's not of the will of man. It's something that God does. Look at John 3, verse 5 and 6. All sorts of debate about verse 5 where Jesus talks about being born of water. But I think the confusion comes in when you separate 5 and 6. And when you read them together, I think it makes perfect sense. John 3, 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And people say, well, what does he mean mean by water? What does that mean? Well, just keep reading. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Look, Jesus is saying there's two ways to be born. There's two ways. Of water, of flesh, like 
physically. You're here today, congratulations, you were born physically. But what you need is to be born again. You need to be born of the Spirit. This is not something you can manufacture on your own. It's something that the Holy Spirit does, which leads us to the very next thought. Jesus told Nicodemus the new birth was a work of the Holy Spirit, and he compared it to the wind. Compares the Holy Spirit to the wind. New birth, being born again, is something the Holy Spirit does. It's his work, and Jesus says it's sort of like the wind. And there's a word play in this passage that you miss if you don't pay attention to the original languages just a little bit. And usually I don't give you too much of this because I think you can understand the scriptures. The main things are the plain things in the Bible. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew to understand it. But this is a little bit helpful. There's a Greek word, pneuma, and it means spirit, wind, or breath. And the meaning is determined by the context. There's a Hebrew word, ruach, It means spirit, wind, or breath. And throughout this passage, Jesus is talking about being born of the Spirit, and he's talking about the wind blowing different places, and he's using the same word all the way through. And it's almost like a pun. As he moves through the passage, as he says different things to Nicodemus, there's different different meanings or different assumptions taking place. But what he's saying is, Nicodemus, you have to be born. The Holy Spirit has to do this work in your life. Right? And it's like, same word, the spirit, the, the wind blowing. You can't control it. It makes you think of Adam in the earliest chapters in the Bible when God forms him out of the dust and then he bends down and he breathes into Adam. He ruachs into Adam and he becomes a life-bearing spirit, a, a whole, complete person. He gets a spirit when God breathes into him. All the same word, all the same idea. Makes you think of Ezekiel 37 where the prophet sees a valley of dry bones and the Lord says to the prophet, son of man, can these bones live? And he says, Lord, you know. And about that time, a mighty wind blows through the valley, right? A mighty ruach blows through the valley and the spirit eventually comes into this body that is brought back to life. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, your sin makes you, not just bad, dead. And you need new life. Left to yourself, you're like Adam formed in the clay before God breathed into him. He wasn't alive. Left to yourself, you're like this this valley of dusty, dry bones cut off and clean without hope. And what you need is the Spirit of God to blow on you like a mighty wind to breathe breath, the breath of God into you, and then you live. Then you have life. Jesus says it's like the wind. You don't see it. You don't control it. We had some wind this last week, right? I drove my kids last weekend, the first weekend of spring break, to Lubbock and dropped them off in Lubbock, and they went up to Amarillo. And about the time we got to Seagraves, there was wind, and you couldn't see the wind, but you could see all of the dirt of sea graves blowing around, right? And so culturally, we're at a disadvantage here. We don't have a whole lot of trees to look at, but you can look at the dirt. If you're translating this into West Texas, you say, look, you don't see the wind, but you see the dirt. The wind blows the dirt, and you know there's wind because you can't see 50 feet in front of you on the highway. 
We saw wind up in the panhandle. We saw it here. Some of you had uh, shingles blown off your house. You saw videos of semi-trucks being blown off the road. You saw gas station canopies just taking flight, right? The wind is powerful, and you can't stop it. And it's going to blow where it wants to blow, and you just better batten down the hatches. And of all the things that God, in his wisdom, could compare the Holy Spirit to, he says it's kind of like the wind. It blows, and you can't see it. But when it blows, there's some evidence that something's happening, right? The trees are moving. The dirt is flying around in the sky. The, the gas station canopy is taking flight. It has an effect, and it has an impact. Listen, when the Holy Spirit takes a dead sinner and brings them to life, you can't see the mechanics of how that works, and you can't diagram it, you can't draw a picture of it, but you can see it. You can see it. Life does not look like death. They look very different. If you don't believe me, take a trip this afternoon to the maternity ward and then go down and see the morgue. They're different. They're not the same. Jesus says to Nicodemus, when the Spirit blows, when the Holy Spirit is bringing life to dead people, you're going to know it. You may not be able to see all of the things happening in a person's heart and in their life, but the end result, there's going to be something different. Life does not look like death. Put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. What do you do with all that? You come at night. You call this guy rabbi. You start off. Did you notice how he started off? John chapter 3, verse 2. Not the best way to start with Jesus, telling him all the things you know. We know. Let me tell you what we know, Jesus. Did you notice what his last sentence was? Verse 9. How can this be? What a transformation has taken place, whether it was a saving transformation or not, we can argue about. But this man, this teacher of Israel, has gone from, let me tell you what we know, to basically saying, I don't get it. I don't understand it. How can these things be? Jesus takes a jab at him. I, I just want you to see this because I think it's funny. Nicodemus shows up and he says, this is what we know. Nicodemus listens to Jesus and he says, I don't understand it. And look what Jesus says in verse 11. We speak of what we know. You don't know anything, Nicodemus. I know. And I'm going to tell you what's true. And you need to listen up and you need to pay attention. And Jesus says to him, you're not listening to our our witness. You're not receiving our testimony. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things... If I've told you how salvation plays out now, here and now on this earth, the Spirit of God blowing, if I've told you that stuff and you don't get it, what if I were to keep going, Nicodemus, and tell you about heavenly things? You haven't even tracked this far. Then Jesus ends with one of the most fascinating parts of the whole gospel. He takes three Old Testament verses and he mashes them together in one sentence. He tells Nicodemus that the ultimate basis upon which the Holy Spirit grants new birth would be his own death on the cross. Do not miss the connection between the last part of our passage and everything before it. Verse 14 and 15 
go together with everything we just talked about, about the Spirit of God being like this wind that brings us to life and God blows on us and and when we're dead in our sins, He makes us alive. It's all connected to verse 14 and 15. Let's just read it. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Three Old Testament references in in those two short sentences. One of them comes from Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, there's a vision. The vision of Daniel 7 is one who is described to be like a son of man, approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days. And he's not told to sit down. He's not told to back up. He's not held at arm's distance. He's invited to share the throne, and he rules over all of the cosmos, the Son of Man. Rules over the cosmos. The next passage Jesus throws in here is Numbers 21. Some of our Sunday school classes talked about this passage just last week. Numbers 21, the people complain. God sends these serpents. They bite the people. They're dying in the wilderness. And at God's instruction, Moses lifts up a bronze serpent on a pole. And whoever looks in faith at the serpent lives in the midst of death. If you look and you believe, you live. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be lifted up in the same way. He's going to be lifted up. And if you look and believe, you'll live. So there's Daniel 7 and there's Numbers 21 and the last one is Isaiah 52. This exact phrase being lifted up is found in Isaiah 52. right? The suffering servant who is crushed for our iniquities, who dies for our sins, who takes our place as a sacrificial lamb. He's lifted up in Isaiah 52. And Jesus takes all of those. He's talking to Nicodemus and he's saying, what you need is life from the Spirit Let me tell you where it's going to really come from. It's not like the Spirit's just floating around here and there, zapping people. Here's the foundation of it. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Isaiah 52. He's going to bear the iniquities of His people. He's going to die their death. Remember, sin doesn't just make you bad, it makes you dead. And Jesus, the suffering servant, is going to take our death. He's going to be lifted up on the cross... If you look to him and believe, you live. Just like the people in the wilderness. I don't need your birth certificate. I don't need your your commitment to keep all these rules. I don't need all these things that you want to do or offer up. That's not how it works. You look and you believe. They looked at the serpent and they believed. You look at the Son of Man lifted up and you believe. And one day, this one who's been lifted up on the cross, this one who is giving you life, is going to come back and he's going to rule the entire cosmos. And when he's ruling over the entire cosmos, that's when the the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And at that point, you can be like the sparrow with your legs up, with your birth certificate, with the list of how good you've been. Or you can say, no, 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 I look to Jesus and I believe. I believe. Jesus says, John 3, verse 15, Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the beautiful dichotomy of John. Jesus, he says these sorts of things all the way through the gospel. On the one hand, he says, you cannot see the kingdom unless you're born again. Well, how am I born again? God does that. You can't do it. It's not of blood. It's not of the will of flesh. It's not of the will of man. 
Only God does it. Well, do I just sit here and wait? What do I do? Jesus tells you what you do. You believe. You look and you believe that the servant was lifted up and he was crushed for your iniquities. You believe that not according to your birth, not according to your morality are you saved, but because of what happened to him on the cross. That's the ground of my salvation. And you understand that if I have any inkling of love or desire for Jesus, any desire to believe, any desire to follow, any desire to trust, any desire to worship, it's not, it didn't start in me. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And if I have that in my life, it's because God has worked life in me. The Spirit has worked new birth. In my life. And so the application is simple. We're going to say it every single week as we go through the Gospel of John. Believe. Look to Jesus and believe.